Thanks for listening to the Woodward Podcast Network. Check out more shows by searching for us on Spreaker or wherever you catch your podcasts. The Woodward Podcast Network with Krupka Dental Associates. Hello, this is Dr. John Krupka from Krupka Dental. We now have the Saleo Laser. You can have your fillings done without needles nor drills. We are a full-service dental office and always accepting new patients. To learn more about me and my friendly team, visit KrupkaDental.com. You're listening to Outside the Box with Ben Cominos here on WHBY. Outside the Box is brought to you by Hooper Law Office, providing a pathway to your legacy. I'll tell you guys what, uh, this is a big one for me here. You're going to be hearing a lot of budgeting talk from this program over the course of the next two or three months as we approach the eventual final decision by our legislature and governor on how we should be spending this surplus we have, where we think the money can go, etc., etc. And I'm going to be bringing a number of different groups on who would like to see this money spent in certain ways. We do a ton of talk on this program about education and the necessity for funding education appropriately and making sure that the kids in this area have an opportunity to thrive and develop, as they do in most other states. And I'm uh, very excited to bring uh, the guests that we have here today. Uh, I actually met with some of these guys back in December, before Christmas even, just kind of getting an overview of what they do, what they hope to see happen, and I've been looking forward to finding an opportunity to... uh, Get them on the show so we can have this in-depth chat here about school funding. So let's start with introductions here first. I am joined by uh, Jim Bowman. He is a member of the Appleton School Board, 14-year member, although this is uh, the last year for you here. How are you today? Fine, thank you so much. Actually, Ben, it's 10 years on the board. Oh, okay. Okay, 10 years on the board. Good stuff there. Uh, he is also here on behalf of the Fox Valley Advocates for Public Education, and that is essentially what we're going to be talking about here. We are also joined by Christian Phelps. He is the Director of Digital Organizing and Communication with um, the Wisconsin Publication or Public Education Network. Christian, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. All right, good stuff here. I'm really thankful both of you guys joined. Um, uh, just, just this is a very important topic, very close to my heart, very close to the, the the heart of the show here. Let's start with just the general information here. Besides your, we'll start with you, Jim. Besides your work uh, on the school board here, give us your background in education, why this is so close to your heart, and why you've taken such a such a stand trying to see the budget process change for public education. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. And let me add that uh, although I'm on, I've been on the board for 10 years, I am not speaking for the board. I am, this is my own point of view today. Uh, my background is all in the private sector, and I worked in training and development, in fact, for a number of large corporations as well as quality assurance. And in those roles, I was very much concerned about the knowledge and skill level of the entire workforce from one end to the other. So I care very much about um, people's interest in learning as well as the information that's provided to them. Okay, great. And Christian, how about yourself? Well, 
I love that question because um, my answer is always kind of an accident, as is my years of advocating for public education, because in reality, I think I joined pretty much everybody else in caring about a lot of things. And every time I try to care about something in particular, it leads me back to public education and public schools. And I just think we can't we can't achieve the kind of society and community that we deserve in Wisconsin if we don't advocate for our public schools and and demand better for them. Yeah, okay. Sounds good, guys. Well, I appreciate both of you guys making some time for us here. Let's start with the population of schools in general in this state. So based on some research I've done, we're looking about uh, 800,000 kids in public schools, 52,000 on vouchers, and 11,000 on independent charters. Jim, why don't you, uh, for the listeners here, break down the difference between these three types of schools. What is a voucher school? What is an independent charter school comparatively to uh, the public program? Well, let's look at those categories. Most of our kids by far are in a public schools. Uh, but beginning in, in 1990, um, uh, the this, this city of Milwaukee or offered a, uh, a program in which struggling kids could go to a private school. And the idea was to give them opportunity that they were not felt to have in the public schools at that time. And, and then uh, 10 years ago, that program was expanded statewide. So you'll hear us talk perhaps about the Milwaukee voucher program and then separately about the statewide expansion because they, they are quite different in how they have unfolded. Uh, additionally, there are, is the charter school category. Now, that's a school that has uh, uh, some level of independence assigned to it. So the, each school has its own board, and that board makes a number of decisions, uh, including curriculum, what is taught in that school. And uh, within the charter group, there's, there's two kinds, uh, and I'll, I'll end with this. And one is the, the kind that's authorized by a school board. So in my district, which is Appleton, we have 14 charter schools that enable uh, kids and their parents to learn a theme education. So, for example, you can go to uh, East High School and sign up for Tesla, and you'll get all the state requirements met as you would in any high school. Uh, But here it'll have an engineering theme. You'll solve problems and learn science and even uh, reading uh, language arts uh, using an engineering theme. So kids graduate from that uh, with that theme and kids that are interested in engineering will enjoy that charter. And then finally, there are independent charters that are formed by some other board other than a school board, some other group, and uh, they are not therefore under the control of your local elected school boards. Okay. Um, and and uh, Christian, you, you provide more of the state-level overview of what's going on uh, in the public education field here. What have you seen as far as how these voucher programs are impacting the public education system uh, as it stands right now? Well, how long do we have? Uh, I mean, plenty unfortunately, of time. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, um, the three voucher programs in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, which was first, Racine, and then the statewide parental choice program, um, are publicly funded programs which come out of the top of the education budget. So right 
off the bat, it reduces the pot of funding available to our public schools statewide, which, as you noted at the beginning of your question, are by far the most popular choice for families in Wisconsin. Over 800,000 students are attending public schools uh, in our state. And uh, those dollars are lost to are lost along with the accountability and oversight over them. And so one of the biggest uh, concerns that I have about a, a, pro, a, a program or a system that uses public dollars to fund private education in that way is that, as Jim alluded to, um, uh, p- traditional public schools and district charter schools that are authorized by a, a district like Jim's in, in Appleton um, come with oversight and accountability. They, they, they come with locally elected school boards. They come with um, uh, the ability for the public to participate in how those dollars are spent. But as soon as the dollars are siphoned off and sent into a private program, not only does it reduce the dollars available to our traditional public schools, but it also reduces our ability to understand what's happening with those dollars. And so um, it essentially has created parallel education systems, both of which are funded by Wisconsin taxpayers, but only one of which are overseen by Wisconsin taxpayers. What's the what's the perceived advantage as a, if you were a parent of a student sending their kid to one of these voucher programs? And this could realistically go to either one of you. I'm assuming this question. But, uh, Christian, I'll start with you. What's the perceived benefit of going to this voucher program over attending a public school? Well, listen, I I have nothing but understanding and um, agreement with people who want involvement in their children's education and who want oversight and who want creativity and choice. Um, And I think that there has been um, a lot of rhetoric that suggests that private education is uh, a better way to achieve those values. But I have not seen evidence that that is necessarily the case. And this isn't to say that people who make their own decisions about their kids' education in any way are doing something wrong. But on the systemic level, um, it is important that we have local control, that we have parental involvement in students' education, and um, that if something isn't working, we explore ways to change it. I would argue that the overwhelmingly popular choice of traditional public schools uh, that parents across Wisconsin make for for what school is right for their their students um, are the best system that we have uh, for public participation in um, creative education, for a a strong education that that comes with oversight from the public, um, and that it is a flexible and impressive system that um, evolves over time as our as our population does. I'll add to Christian's comments. Uh, the originally the intent was, in my judgment, honorable. The uh, idea was to improve student learning. So in 1990, when Milwaukee started its program, kids would go to private schools from public because they would learn more. Uh, Over time, however, research has been conducted nationwide, many large-scale, sophisticated studies, 
and they've shown in state after state kids do not learn more in the voucher school than they would have learned in the public school that they left. In fact, School Choice Wisconsin, which is a leading advocacy group in our state, has dropped from its website the claim that kids learn more. They dropped that about 10 or 15 years ago when this research was becoming clear. So in answer to Ben's question, the uh, argument now is simply choice. You deserve choice. You as a parent deserve choice with where your education dollars should be spent. Therefore, we should have vouchers. So there, the, my judgment, the sole advantage now is choice. And in the state of Wisconsin, that means religious education because virtually every private school, not all, but about 95% of the private schools offering vouchers that accept vouchers uh, are parochial schools that offer the religious education. There are some downsides that have come with, uh, with vouchers, and I'll mention two of them. Uh, a significant one is cost. The uh, cost of vouchers in this state is being picked up by property taxpayers. So, for example, in my district, uh, we get a certain amount deducted from our state aid each year for the, the, the number of kids from my district, which is few, who have signed up for vouchers. Uh, that amount we pass on to property taxpayers. They're paying the full bill. And in my district, the cost now is about $50 per $100,000 of home valuation. So if you own a $200,000 home, you're paying 100 bucks a year, every year, for vouchers, whether or not you take advantage of it. And to a great extent, you're just paying it for somebody else. Uh, there's a second, uh, and, and that's, to my knowledge, true in every state, every district in this uh, state. There's a second downfall. And that is uh, voucher schools can uh, reject a kid. The kid can sign up for the school and the school can decide in time after observing him or her that they don't want that kid. And that has happened in Milwaukee with special education kids. Autistic kids scratch and kick sometimes. They just do. It's, it's part of what they have as a disability. And because of that, uh, that uh, private school might say, we're not going to permit you in our classroom. So in, after years of vouchers in Milwaukee now, the, even though the statewide, about 15% of kids uh, are classified as special ed, in the voucher school, it's only 2%. They have apparently rejected enough difficult kids that their number is down to 2%. Yet in the Milwaukee public schools, it's now elevated up to 20 so you see this clear delineation and differentiation of how special ed kids are treated. That's the second uh, liability. And we're going to be we're going to be diving deep into the uh, special ed facet of this a little later on this hour here. But just uh, we're we're about to head to break here. But just for just so I might be able to hear what you're saying in a concise way here. Are you essentially saying that through this voucher program, essentially public dollars are going to private institutions? that could otherwise be used at public schools. Is yes, that, that essentially? Is okay. Uh, where have you guys heard that before, other than so many other different industries that we talk about on this program? Uh, we have a whole lot more coming up here. We're going to dive into how schools are funded on the other side of the break and what changes were uh, the, the members of Fox Valley um, uh, Advocates for Public Education and Wisconsin Public Education Network are hoping to see as a result of uh, the, this budget coming up here in the near future. Whole lot more to get into here on Outside the Box with Ben Kaminos here on WHBY. 
And we're back to Outside the Box with Ben Cominos here on WHBY. Uh, anybody who wants to join the conversation, you can call or text. I ran it past the guest today. I know some of you guys get ticked off whenever I don't take calls during uh, guest segments. Uh, it's whenever I don't get the chance to ask them. That's whenever I don't take calls. But as soon as I get that confirmation, I'm totally cool with it, so as long as they are. So we have agreement here. Uh, that they are willing to take calls if anybody wants to chime in on this school funding question here. Those are the Settlers Bank phone lines, 920-281-1150, 920-281-1150, if you're trying to chime in on the conversation here. Uh, when we left it before the break, uh, I, I kind of teased that we were going to set this up here. So school funding has been at a shortfall for years now at this point. Quite frankly, years might not even be doing it justice. Uh, how did we get here, and what does funding of the school system look like in general? Jim, we'll start with you. Well, there's the schools are publicly fun, public schools are publicly funded, and we get um, generally uh, about half of our revenue comes from what's called state general aid. Um, that comes from from your uh, your uh, income taxes and from your uh, sales taxes. And then about a third of it comes from local property taxes. So that's local taxes paid on property in the school district's area. And, and then the remember comes from uh, various kinds of federal programs uh, and uh, local uh, 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 charges that the school enacts, like charges to participate in a sports program. So there, the but the big bulk comes from what's called state general aid and property taxes. Now, in terms of the uh, level of funding, there's two uh, issues that we have. Uh, number one, since about 2009, state aid has seriously lacked the level of inflation. So. Uh, each year, uh, you know, percent here, two percent there, but over the period of time since 2009, that d lag between what we're getting and what we would have gotten had the amount been stayed constant with inflation is quite significant. It's now about fifteen hundred dollars per child. Excuse me, about three thousand dollars per child. So that's a lot of money. And the inflation level is a big deal to a school district because about 75% of our operating budget goes to staff and uh, salaries and benefits for staff. So if inflation goes up by 3%, generally your teachers and your, your, your administrators expect to be kept whole with inflation. And if we can't meet that or get close to it at least, then we run the risk of losing them, and then the quality of instruction goes down. So that's number one, inflation. There's a number two cause of underfunding, and that is the freeze in last year's budget. The 2021 to 23 school budget froze virtually all of our revenues, all of our revenues at what it was in the year 2020. So we've been operating with this old, this reduced level of revenue or freeze for uh, throughout this two-year period. So now we feel in this new budget we need catch-up. Okay. Well, uh, I'll tell you what. I have a question for you as well, Christian. I wanted to see what you wanted to follow up, but we actually have a call on the Settlers Bank phone line, so let's see what that question sound like. so, hello, sounds like. Hello, you're on Outside the Box. Yeah, this is uh, Gary calling. What's up, Gary? Hey, uh, ben, uh, you might ask this, or maybe your guests could answer these two 
questions. My understanding was about, oh, maybe 25 years ago, whatever it was, uh, Mike Ellis was an assemblyman, and then he became a, a senator at the state level. And my recollection back in the in those far days was that there was a promise when the state uh, started to collect the money on behalf of local governments that they made a promise or at least an implied uh, insinuation that uh, they would the state would fund two-thirds of public education and as I recall that kind of uh, dropped down to somewhere around 57 percent so they never the state never upheld its uh, obligation and its promise to the uh, citizens of Wisconsin in order to to save state money and also get their get their paws on uh, local financing. The other the other comment that I'd like them to comment on is my understanding of uh, tax increment financing is that uh, vocational school funding and public school funding is held harmless when each community sets up a TIF district and they don't funnel any of that former tax money back into the local school district. And uh, that cuts the local district short on, on money for many, many year, years because those uh, TIFs get extended or reconfigured or whatever. So maybe they could comment on those two items. Yeah, thanks for the call, Gary. We're obviously swimming well out of my depth here with those questions. But, uh, uh, Jim, we'll start with you, and then Christian will chime. We'll have you chime in after uh, Jim wraps up here. Go ahead, Jim. I think it was Jerry's name. I Gary, think, uh, Gary. Okay, yes. Gary. Uh, thank you so much for the question. You're absolutely right on your first question. Uh, the commitment was made, and it's back in the 19, around 1990 that – uh, public school districts would be funded at the two-thirds level by the state. Uh, and then that uh, fell, started falling short, uh, partly due to the race against inflation. And so we're far short of that now. Uh, that argument is still made kind of casually now, but I don't know that anybody feels that the, uh, the state government will honor this two-thirds commitment that was made decades ago. So uh, I, 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 though we made that casual argument, too, we don't really expect them to come back. It would be great if that commitment were there, but the people that made that commitment are no longer in office. Uh, on your second uh, comment, the, the TIFs, um, I've been on the board 10 years in Appleton. I haven't heard the, the TIF argument made. So uh, the uh, incremental financing uh, point you're making, I haven't heard that anywhere. I'm going to do some research on it, but I'm sure if it affected us, uh, it would have been it would have come up. Christian, do you have anything to add to that? And that's uh, we're speaking with Christian Phelps as well. He's the director of digital organizing and uh, communities with the Wisconsin Public Education Network. Do you have anything to add to that there? Sure. The, uh, I, too, haven't heard the TIF argument, but I would say there are a lot of examples in which our public school districts in Wisconsin, which are the system that we have a constitutional obligation to provide to all young people in our state and a moral responsibility to provide, um, often get the last grab at the pot. And that is totally illogical to me that the system that is available to all, that welcomes all students, and that is a constitutional responsibility of ours would be um, sort of last in the in the div race for, for the resources that they need to provide that education. Um, 
As far as the two-thirds funding piece, um, you will hear some notes of the fact that in the last budget, the obligate or the responsibility and the, the commitment from the state to provide two-thirds funding was restored in uh, uh, technically, but as Jim mentioned, a frozen budget means that that hasn't really done anything yet. I mean, when, when you're providing two-thirds of the funding, but the funding is zero new dollars that districts can spend, um, the two-thirds is not yet meaningful, but it does provide us an opportunity with the huge state surplus that we have right now to finally start meeting students' needs and provide for them what they deserve because the responsibility is there and hopefully the, the will to provide is there this time. Jim, your, your face leads me to believe you have something else you want to say or no? Okay. All right. So we're going to continue along here with the conversation then. So there's a, uh, a, a blue ribbon report. It's a bipartisan, as is the, uh, the uh, Fox Valley Advocates for Public Education. You guys are a bipartisan group as well, despite, uh, you know, quite frankly, there is an element of partisanship that's no, through no fault of your own that exists right now in the legislature, but the actual group identifies as neither side. In this report, there's three facets that we're looking to that they're looking to increase here, whether it's revenue, special education, or mental health. Why don't we just kind of give everybody an overview here, starting with the revenue, the revenue limits per pupil. Give the listeners an understanding of what exactly we're dealing with here. And again, anybody who wants to chime in, 920-281-1150, that's call or text. Go ahead, Jim. Remember the, uh, it's a good question, Ben. Uh, re remember the bulk, as I mentioned earlier, the great bulk of our revenue comes from state general aid and property taxes. That's probably about 70 to 80 percent of it for my district. Uh, though the sum of those two is constrained by a revenue limit. Let me repeat that. The sum of our two biggest revenue sources is constrained by a revenue limit that's set by the state. Now, that's, uh, that originally had a, a great purpose. The idea was to keep school districts from raising your property taxes again and again every time they want another penny. Uh, so it had a good purpose, but it has been taken far beyond that in, in recent years and used as a tool against public education. So when the revenue limit was frozen uh, in the early, last budget, that's a huge item for us. You take any private business, and once again, that's my background, private sector, you take any business and freeze their revenue at some past level, they are dead in the water. I mean, absolutely dead because they can't handle a changing cost structure. So we are in serious trouble right now statewide because of that frozen revenue limit. Okay, interesting. Christian, do you have anything else uh, to add there before we move on to uh, special education? Well, revenue limits are a perfect example of things that we do in Wisconsin that are based on arbitrary standards and not student need. Um, when districts are frozen at a revenue limit, which is essentially a spending limit if, in, in, in more, more reasonable terms, um, they, they're frozen at a level that was determined in 1993-94, 30 years ago, and uh, at whatever their district was spending at that time. And then for several years, until the latter years of the Doyle administration, um, those revenue limits were raised along with inflation in an automatic or assumed way. 
And since then, that hasn't been the case. And as Jim has mentioned a couple times, they weren't raised at all in the last budget. And so not only have the spending caps imposed on districts not kept pace with inflation in, the, in our recent state budget, um, the system as a whole is based on how much your district was spending in the early 90s and not based on what students in your district need and deserve. It's not based on poverty level. It's not based on disability status. It's not based on uh, teacher uh, inventory. It's based on essentially nothing. Wow. Go ahead. You had something else to add, Jim? Yes, if I may add, this this revenue limit is different for every school district. And uh, some they, they were set arbitrarily in 1993, and then they've been increased uh, at times since then. But still, the, the variation between revenue limits between school districts is quite significant. So some districts have a much higher revenue limit than others. It varies by about $2,000 from the highest district in our state to the lowest. So some districts are really getting a bad, bad shift on this. They just can't provide the level of education that their residents want because they're stuck with an old-fashioned and out-of-date revenue limit. Okay. All right. That makes seems to make that, sense. And that's two thousand dollars per pupil. What what Jim said there. Wow. Um, and you'll and evidence of of how untenable the system is is the number of referenda we've seen, where the only way districts can get the resources they need is to ask their local property taxpayers to raise taxes on themselves because the state hasn't provided what they need. That that's pretty remarkable. You actually, Christian, you jumped you jumped ahead on my note sheet here. But while you're bringing that up here, it is remarkable that we're we're voting to increase taxes on ourselves when we already have a surplus available to address so many of these needs. But people have to voluntarily agree to uh, to increase their own taxes in order to see the changes they want to see. And we're going to talk a little bit more in the third segment about. Uh, the success rate of all of these different referenda that we've been seeing around the state here. But Christian, while I'm talking to you here, let's move on to the special needs component of this ask. And um, this one hits close for me. Uh, you're seeing dwindling funding for a number of different special needs programs across the state of Wisconsin when compared to how they were funded in the 80s. What's leading to this drop and uh, what, what, what are you hoping to see change there? Christian, well, this no, yeah. is a perfect example of something that could be changed that would have an enormous impact on its own. Um, special education is obviously a constitutional and moral requirement. All special education needs that, that any student has in Wisconsin must be met by our public schools. And it's not just that they must be met, they should be met because all students deserve the quality education that they need. Um, when the state does not provide a reimbursement of special education costs, which is how it works in Wisconsin, the schools still have to provide those services. And they still do provide those services by spending money that they don't really have in order to provide them because the state hasn't. So right now, we're the state is reimbursing about 30% of what local school districts are spending on special education. And that means that about $1.5 billion dollars statewide is coming out of general education spending for local districts to cover the, that huge gap that's left by the state in special education costs. So not only do special education students not get what they deserve, and it's essentially, I would argue, 
a system of discrimination against them, but all students are suffering because those resources are then having to be reallocated and sort of pulled out of thin air because of that huge gap that's left. And so, um, as you mentioned, in the early 80s, the state was reimbursing 66, roughly 66 percent of special education costs. Now it's, you know, 30 percent, less than a third of that. And um, leaving a $1.5 billion gap for local public school districts across the state. Luckily, we have a huge state surplus that can be put to good use and a governor's budget proposal that we can fight for that would restore that 60% commitment and hopefully get us on track to go higher than that so that we don't have to participate in this kind of discrimination. With special education, we're, let me clarify, we're talking about kids who have some identified disability, and there's a defined process for clarifying whether a kid is classified special ed or not. So autism is one frequently mentioned example. Autistic kids can be brilliant, I mean, and do incredible things, but they also have behaviors that are difficult in the classroom. So they need special attention. Now, uh, to clarify and, and add, amplify what Christian just said, uh, in my district, we have about 15,000 kids total, and about 15% uh, of those are classified as special education. So to that 15%, we are required by the federal government to provide a whole host of services that enable them to get equity to get the same educational opportunity that everybody else gets. But because the state only reimburses us for 30% of those costs, we take the rest from the general fund, our general fund, which means all of the kids who, who do not have a disability are getting shorted. Now, that amount in my district is $23 million per year. I repeat, $23 million per year is taken from the kids who do not have disabilities and given to those who do. So we could be providing a better education to everybody else if we could just get better reimbursement from the state for the disabilities. Yeah, I was uh, pretty jarring to find out in researching for this segment that um, we're ranked the worst amongst all 50 states, like worse than Alabama. I don't even know how you get there, but we're worse than Alabama at this. So it's definitely something uh, that, that's remarkable. And again, having I've worked with kids and uh, adults with special needs for most of my uh, young adulthood, so that definitely hits close to me. We're going to have to throw to another break here. Everybody's going to be sticking around with us here. We're speaking with Jim Bowman, Appleton uh, School Board member, and Chris Phelps, the uh, Director of Digital Organizing and Communities with the Wisconsin Public Education Network. On the other side, of the break we're going to be talking about mental health resources for students as well as what you guys can do at home if you're listening to this and losing your mind pulling your hair out about how underfunded so many different aspects of our education system are what can you do and what can we expect from our legislature we still have one more segment with these guys talking education here on outside the box with ben Cominos on whby And we're back to Outside the Box with Ben Cominos here on WHBY. Outside the Box is brought to you by Hooper Law Office, providing a pathway to your legacy. Um, 
Before we get into continuing our conversation here about the state of public education, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up with you guys. If you're looking to do a deep dive into any of the information we're talking about here, I know uh, I probably have the absolute smartest audience in all of Wisconsin on this program, so I know a lot of you guys look to look up a lot of the information you hear on this show. Go ahead and check out, it's the uh, it's FCA4PE.org. That's F is in face. C is in cat, A is in apple, the number four, P is in Paul, E is in extra.org. All of this information is available in a resource guide that is on that site. Any of the information that I'm speaking about with both Appleton School Board Member Jim Bowman and Director of Digital Organizing and Communication with uh, Wisconsin Public Education Network, Christian Phelps. Um, really quickly, guys, we have about 10 minutes left here. So we were talking about the three facets you're looking Actually, before we jump back into that, we have a text message on the Settlers Bank text lines from Jackie in Appleton. She would like to know what are the prospects for teacher pay raises without additional state aid. I understand there is already a shortage of new teachers, especially in rural areas. Jim, what do you have to say about that? on each individual district, um, if we don't get a significant catch-up uh, raise from the state, then we have a serious problem holding on to our current staff because inflation, as we all know, is running quite high, and, and they really want to be kept whole. They've had difficult time. Even though the, the pandemic meant that we went to virtual for a while, that was still a difficult time for teachers because uh, they like to teach in person. They don't like teaching virtually either. So uh, teachers have had a difficult time during the pandemic, and they expect to be kept whole. Now, some districts have uh, money in what we call savings or fund balance. It's money that they picked up during good times and that they keep there uh, so that they can keep uh, their uh, rates they're borrowing or debt rates lower. If you have a significant fund balance, then you can borrow money for a referenda at a lower rate. Some st uh, districts have a little bit of money there, and they can use that to get them through uh, this crunch. Uh, but a number of districts, particularly the little guys, do not have that. And I, they're not going to be able to give their teachers a good raise, and they're going to lose some of them. Mm. Okay, Jackie, thank you so much for that question, really helping to uh, spur the conversation along here. So uh, really quickly, we're just going to touch on mental health. Not that it's not important, but I actually did a pretty in-depth conversation, and anyone who didn't get a chance to listen, that conversation is up on the Outside the Box page on the WHBY website, talking about mental health uh, experts in schools and why it's a necessity <laughs> here. The numbers you see, what's, what's recommended for uh, social workers for student ratio is 1 to 250. In our state, it's 1 to 1,750. Quite frankly, this is a problem that seems to have been needing addressed a while ago. So uh, we'll start with you, Jim, and then Christian, you can you can pile on once he finishes his answer here. Uh, what are you hoping to see change? Because obviously we need to see some big changes if this is to believe, be yeah, believed. Let me, let me first start off with the problem. Uh, what do we mean by mental health? The, the data says that about one in every five kids has a mental health issues that may or may not be diagnosed. Um, statewide, we've got about 40% of our kids on free and reduced lunch. Now, that means they're from a low-income family. So what does that mean to the kid? Well, it means to the class, that kid 
from the low-income family might be sleeping out of a car. Uh, if his or her parents are on um, low-income jobs, uh, they might be shifted from one job to another. When one job peters out, the parent has to find another one, or they might be shifted from one shift to another. And that tends to cause the family to have to move from one location to another within the district. And when they move, their kid is shifted from one elementary school to another. So we have, in my district, we have some uh, bad cases, unfortunately, of kids that have been shifted three times during a year. So imagine yourself in first, second, or third grade, and uh, every three or four months, you're being shifted to a new elementary school, a new set of classmates, a new teacher. That makes the job of the child that much more difficult. Now we trend, we tend to re, we try to reduce that in in my district by uh, transporting kids around to keep them in the same school, but most districts can't do that. So you think of the mental toll that takes on the child. So I, I position that to you as the problem, that kids are coming uh, to school from more difficult environments than they did decades ago, and that's taking a toll on their mental health. So Ben's comment on the lack of social workers and school psychologists in the state is absolutely true. It means we have fewer people, fewer counselors that can work with teachers, work with the kids and work with teachers to help resolve those issues. Christian, instead of uh, doubling down on what Jim had to say there, we actually have another text here from the uh, Settlers Bank phone line that maybe you might be able to answer. I'm at least going to float it out there to you, and you tell us if uh, this is something you might have the capacity to answer. This is coming from Jim, regular listener of the show. Uh, I always enjoy hearing from him because he and I never agree on anything, so it provides some some fun back and forth on, on the show here. So, Jim, I hope you're still listening. Um I would like to find out why when we build these new schools, they have to be so elaborate that we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on facial fronts and very elaborate entrances to the school. I don't believe that has anything to do with education, and I believe it is a waste of money we could dial down. Uh, how much of that is impacting the funding for schools whenever it comes to, if you are familiar with this information, do you have any insight there? Christian, we'll start with you. Well... Uh, I, I'm inclined to think that Jim is is referring to a specific project that I may not be familiar with. Okay. Um, I would argue that our students are deserving of state-of-the-art schools where they can have not just an adequate but a joyful public education. And so I would be um, inclined to have a, a, a deeper conversation about, like, specific concerns about spending where, you know, being responsible with our dollars is absolutely a, sh a value that I share with Jim. Um, and I tend to think that investment in students and kids first is the most responsible way to prioritize our spending. Um, and I would argue that all of this has something to do with the mental health piece, just to go a little bit back to that. You know, the social worker point is extremely important. Psychologists, counselors, better working environment for educators, but also the way we talk about public education. You know, we can't pretend that we haven't all been through a three-year pandemic, that we haven't been through decades of cuts, that we haven't seen an increase in rhetoric that sort of makes teachers' jobs politicized and makes the environment in our public schools uh, a little bit pricklier. 
And all of that has something to do with the amount of joy that students can find in our public schools. So let's let kids be kids. Let's meet them where they are. Let's realize that they've been through the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic, that they're part of the, the global economy that's seeing so much inflation and volatility. And let's just return to putting them first and talk about them in a way that centers their public education. All right. Good answer there. I'll tell you guys what. We are about two minutes away from wrapping up the hour here. Jim, what's what can people do listening right now if they want to get involved? If they're like, you know what, I would like to see my child have more but more funding for their programming. What can they do to see those changes happen? Yeah, the uh, at the legislature, we'll be working on the next biennial budget. That's for 2023 to 25. They'll be working on that for the next oh, five or six months. Uh, so uh, they are open for your comments right now. So I, I would encourage you to uh, contact uh, your state assembly person and state senator either by I don't recommend text. Uh, that doesn't work so well with with legislators, but email or hard copy or phone is always excellent and encourage them to fully fund the schools in the next budget. Anything to add there, Christian? I think that Jim has handled that very well. And if people want to get involved in the budget statewide or join the sort of statewide group of people who are making sure the public is aware of how important these issues are, WisconsinNetwork.org slash budget is where, where we house some actions and resources at Wisconsin Public Education Network so that people can sort of get on our budget insiders list and be ready to take action as the twists and turns of the process Um, take place over the next couple of months. Fantastic. All right. I am joined by Jim Bowman, Appleton School Board member, and Christian Phelps, Director of Digital Organizing and Communications with Wisconsin Public Education Network. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Lots of good information today. We appreciate hearing from you. Thanks, Ben. All right, guys. We'll be back on the other side of the news. Listening outside the box with Ben Cominos here on WHBY. Outside the box is brought to you by Hooper Law Office, providing a pathway to your legacy. Really good conversation that I had there with uh, both the Fox Valley advocates for or Fox City's advocates for public education, as well as the Wisconsin Public Education Network. big decisions that are going to need to be made over the course of the next couple of months here whenever it comes to funding these different programs. I'll tell you what, I couldn't help but think um, while we were chatting there, and I didn't take the time to insert my own stories because uh, even having spoken to them for an entire hour, you know, there there was quite a bit of information that we needed to get to. So I felt like my own personal experience with education, given that it's in another state and from 15 years ago, plus actually even longer than that, uh, 15 years ago only makes me 20. Oh, no, I'm getting old. Um, 
from 20 years ago then obviously aren't as relevant as they would be today. That being said, I couldn't help but flash back to my freshman year of college. Full disclosure, I did very well at my SATs and I went to rich people's school. I was not a rich person, obviously. So I got there because I had great grades and good test scores because my vocabulary was decently sized for a high school person. Um, when I got to this school, most of my uh, peers were coming from private institutions. And for me, I felt like there was very distinctly an advantage that they had over me. I was trained, you write a five-paragraph essay, you start with, a, with your thesis of the paragraph, you provide three examples of evidence, and then you end with a sentence that ties it back to the original thesis of the paper. That is how they teach you to write in public school. And then you get to college, and my first paper had to be eight pages long, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to how to how to stretch the five paragraph paid uh, paper into an eight page format. Obviously, the answer to that as an adult is it isn't going to work and you need to think of a different way to get to articulate your thoughts. Otherwise, you're going to do poorly. But as a result of my uh, education versus the education of a number of my peers, I felt like I was distinctly at a disadvantage. Now, the schools that some of these kids were going to were costing more than $10,000 a year to go to high school. Um, and I'm not anti. If you have the money to afford that sort of thing, far be it for me to say you can't send your kids there or those type of schools shouldn't exist because it's providing some students with a leg up. I understand that resources lend themselves to a better education, to things like that. Where I get frustrated is when I find out that those schools where people are paying $10,000 to go are then being funded with our tax dollars that could be going to public schools to try and give those students more of a leg up to try and keep up with the people dropping an extra $10,000 a year on their education. That's my own experience with it. Anybody else who wants to chime in on this conversation, 920-281-1150, 920-281-1150. And in case you're sitting there wondering what was the paper about he was writing, I read the book Grendel, which was the story of Beowulf, but from the perspective of one of the monsters that he kills. And I wrote a paper about whether or not he was a monster as a result of nature or nurture. That's how my mind worked when I was 18 years old, in case you were wondering. And I got a D. I got a D on it because I, I wrote a paper the way I had been taught to write a paper over the course of four years, which was a pretty jarring realization for me as a college student. I'm not telling this story to trash public education. I'm telling this story to highlight the fact that schools where you can pay a lot more money to attend exist. And if you find yourself in that fortunate situation where you determine you would like to send your child to that private school, right on, free country. Where I get frustrated, though, is when it is expected that some tax dollars are going to go to that school out of some kind of perceived fairness. It's kind of like how the, the line that a lot of people are using in the legislature right now. Governor Evers is suggesting we cut the tax rate for all people making $100,000 and less by 10%. And then conservatives come out and say, well, what about the people making $240,000 a year? They really don't need it. They really don't need it, guys. I'm going to be honest with you, and it's kind of the same principle that applies to the private school issue as well. You know what I mean? So 
that's where I come from. If anybody is kind of confused about what I'm talking about right now, uh, be sure to download the WHBY mobile app powered by Christensen Heating and Air Conditioning, or you can hop on the WHBY uh, uh, webpage as well, just whby.com. Check out the Outside the Box page. I'm going to post my entire interview with the Advocates for Public Education. Very interesting conversation. A lot of big decisions that we can expect to be made over the course of the next uh, couple of months here. I guess June is whenever we're expecting the budget to finally be finalized. Um, anybody who wants to chime in on the conversation, 920-281-1150. That is a call and a text line. 9202811150. Great questions, by the way, from the listeners who both called and texted. I'm definitely thinking text questions are the future of me with guests. So if anybody ever has questions whenever they know I have a guest coming up, shoot them to me down the text line, and I'll be sure to get those questions on the air for you. Um, all right, really quickly here, we're going to examine scott adams very interesting cat right now uh he is the creator of dilbert uh very popular comic somehow over the course of the last 30 years i think it very recently celebrated its 30 year birthday um i'm gonna be honest with you as someone who genuinely enjoys workplace satire and i enjoy the movie office space uh, i enjoy the movie sorry to bother you uh you can go down the list there's a number of different movies and tv shows that harp on the monotony of of cubicle life and having worked in sales for almost a decade i most certainly am privy to that lifestyle i i know exactly the the pros and cons of that kind of lifestyle uh that being said i never felt like dilbert was particularly entertaining or really hit on that same level that so many of these famous satirical works were able to do I realize you're obviously limited. He can only do like a four to six panel comic and you have to keep it rated at a certain level because it's going in newspapers and magazines and a number of other publications. Or at least it was up until recently. He is being, he calls it canceled. I call it being fired uh, for comments that he made about the black community. I'm going to play them. I went back and forth on am I going to play them or not. Uh, the answer is yes, I'm going to. So we're going to listen to that. And for the record, I did edit out one cuss. Other than that, I left the audio that I found completely untouched. You're going to hear a couple of beeps and edits at the end. That was actually done by whoever put the video up. That has nothing to do with anything I did. So this minus one F word is in the in its entirety or almost its entirety, what he had to say about the black community being a hate group. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where you know, I have a very low black population. Because unfortunately, the, you know, there's a high correlation between the density... And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. 
Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when, when he notes that the, when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm, I'm going uh, to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. Like, I've been doing it all my life, and I've been, the only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. That's the only outcome. <laughs> it makes no sense to help black Americans if you're white. Uh, the, the, it's over. Don't, don't even think it's worth trying. Totally not trying. And there we go. You didn't expect that today, did you? <laughs> but those who don't want to focus on education, you just need to get away from them. Just get as much distance as you can. So I've done a number of segments on this show talking about how predictable cancel culture has become. Um, I can tell you, I, I've used the examples uh, when Dr. Seuss canceled or eliminated the six books that had uh, Asian people depicted negatively or whatever the, the books were accused of. And again, no one was calling. That's the important thing here. No one was calling for the cancellation of anything. Dr. Seuss decided, you know what? These books have aged less than well. We're just going to remove them. And you know what happened? People bought those six books at record numbers. Mr. Potato Head, we're dropping genders. We're just going to have Potato Head. What happened? People bought Potato Head at record numbers. You can go down the list, whether or not it's satanic panic stuff or it's stuff like this that's deemed either uh, racially insensitive, which this almost certainly is, but I realize that sometimes people overstep their boundaries um, whenever it comes to claiming something is racist or not intended to, to mean a certain thing, this, that, or the other. It's becoming predictable. This guy, Scott Adams, knew what he was saying was inflammatory. And I'm sick and tired of creating this term cancel culture to be like, oh, this is some new phenomenon. No, what's happening is Scott Adams is getting fired for saying dumb crap, just like I would if I said dumb crap. The difference is you're never going to see me get canceled because I'm not a moron. That's the major difference here. The PC rules, the cancel culture rules, are created for idiots. Idiots don't understand why these rules exist. Everybody else seems to be able to maneuver within this reality pretty comfortably without needing to sell out who they are or capitulate to some other group. I think you guys know listening to this show long enough. We've only been going for about six months at this point, but I think you know. I'm an opinionated guy, and I'm not afraid to tell you how I feel about things, and I'm not worried about the ramifications because I know everything I'm saying is not coming from a hateful place. This guy talks about all the things he's done for the black community, and he gets called a racist for trying to help. I want one example of that happening ever. I want one example of him trying to assist 
a black community with something and not being met with anything other than praise. And here's the deal at the end of the deal. I by no means am going to imply that I have any concept of what the black experience is like. Um, what I do know is they have been met with, depending on the age of the person, if they are an older black person, most of their life has been white people not being great. And we're making changes. Like, society is making plenty of changes. We are trending in the right direction. Like, like, I'm not sitting here saying things are worse than ever. No, things are very clearly better than ever, with plenty of room to grow still. But it is better now than it was 20 years ago, which was better than 20 years before that, which was better than 20 years before that. That is the reality of the situation. But I can still understand, especially within the older generations, of seeing an entire race of people hate you for no reason other than you exist, and then developing some resentment towards that community. I am not surprised by that statistic whatsoever. All I can do, all we can do, is do our best to not be hateful, to accommodate all groups of people, and try and make the changes so that in another 20 years, this whole concept seems foreign. But the people rallying behind Scott Adams as if, man, freedom of speech must be gone. No, freedom of speech still most certainly exists. Notice how he's not in jail. Notice how he hasn't been sentenced to death. It's because you can say whatever you want, but you can be fired. And while we're on it, really quickly here, cancel culture is not even a real thing. I don't know if we've covered this yet on this program, but I would love Call or text 920-281-1150. I need one example of somebody who was ever actually canceled other than Colin Kaepernick. I need one example of anybody who was ever actually canceled ever. Because it seems to me like people lose jobs, but then within six months ultimately end up getting another job. I used to say other than Colin Kaepernick or Roseanne Barr, but I saw Roseanne Barr now has her own show on the Fox streaming service. So now it's exclusively Colin Kaepernick is the only example of cancel culture that I can find anywhere. I would love for somebody to provide me with a second example. So Scott Adams, giant clown. Uh, really not respecting anything that he has to say. That whole rant. He knew what he was saying. Someone just texted the Dixie Chicks. I'm not familiar with this story, but I kind of feel like I did. Didn't they come out in favor of the Black Lives Matter movement or something like that? I don't, I don't remember what they're being canceled for. But isn't it funny that we act like cancel culture is always left to right Whenever it, when in my experience it seems like cancel culture most certainly goes both ways. Again, if it's even real. Because I remember efforts to cancel The Simpsons. 33 years later, still very popular show. Effort, efforts to cancel Mortal Kombat in the early 90s. Mortal Kombat 11 came out a couple years ago, so let's call that a failed endeavor. We can go down the list all the way up to Sam Smith dressing like Satan and doing the unholy dance at the Grammys. Interesting stuff. I'm going to look into the Dixie Chick story during the break here. Dan from Oshkosh, I appreciate the input. Uh, you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into it and see if uh, if this is real cancel culture. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, we'll be back on the other side of the break. You're listening to Outside the Box here on WHBY.
Show up with Wood Radio Group's big deals and save up to 30% on gift cards and certificates to local businesses featuring home and garden, automotive, gifts, food and beverage, services, travel, entertainment, and more. Check back often for new inventory, plus shop our clearance section for up to 70% off. Shop local and save the day with Woodward Radio Group's big deals. Click the big deals button at whby.com. Exclusions apply. See online store for details. All right. So during the break, I first of all, I received an email for uh, rather a text from Cynthia saying uh, R. Kelly was canceled. Good. LOL. Uh, yeah, that's fair. He was canceled. I think that term we're looking for might be arrested, not canceled, but, uh, that's fair. I have a feeling his career has probably come to an end, but, uh, during the break, I, uh, was researching the Dixie chicks, uh, what they were canceled for. And I'm not even lying. I typed Dixie chicks canceled into Google. And the first story that popped up from January 22nd, 2020. So just before COVID, I'm pretty sure actually January 22nd was the first reported case of COVID now that I think about it. But uh, so there are actually stories that have come out since then, but this one is at the top of the search. And the title of the article is How Dixie Chicks Went From Cancelled to Heroes. And that's kind of my point. For those of you that don't know the story, though, I did continue to research it. Listen to how tame this is. They were doing a concert. And uh, obviously it was 03, so George Bush was president. George Bush uh, Jr. at the time. And uh, they said, just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. At uh, We do not want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed the president of the United States is from Texas. That is what they said to get themselves canceled back in 2003. Think about that in terms of, uh, of uh, 2023 terms. Although, to be fair... Uh, it, uh, be, being, uh, against the Iraq war now is like the cool thing to do, but doing it in 2003 definitely required some nerve. I know Bill Maher ended up getting fired, not canceled, fired for, uh, coming out and calling, uh, America cowards for dropping drone strike bombs over in the Middle East, whereas they were flying airplane or, uh, yeah, airplanes into our structures. He said, yeah, one of the two groups is coward, but I'm not going to, he's, I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said the cowards are not the people flying planes into the building within weeks of 9-11 happening. And uh, while there is some validity to his take there, um, it, 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 it was a different time period coming out without staunch support for the war in 2002, 2003 a little different than doing it in 2022 or 2023 so i understand why the dixie chicks were quote unquote canceled but at the same time they're still making music they're still touring uh, i'm sure a lot of their demographic maybe has abandoned ship but quite frankly if making that one comment is enough to make the majority of your fan base uh, switch sides i realize that this might be hard to, to swallow at the time but maybe it's not worth having them as a fan base I know I'm a major uh, Eminem fan. Back in, I want to say, 2017, he did a freestyle thing on the BET Rap Awards, and the whole thing was against Donald Trump. And uh, a third of his of his listener base was white kids from the Midwest who loved Donald Trump, loved his counterculture approach, and they sit there seeing, uh, seeing their idol say, this guy's a clown. And... He lost his record sales 
completely fell off a cliff. But he, in essence, said, I think during that exact event, he drew a metaphorical line in the sand and said, if you're over there with him, do not come over here with me. You can disagree with that sentiment. Absolutely fine. He knows that as well. And you can choose to not buy his records anymore. If you have that kind of belief, though, and you've, you've kind of already made it, to me, it kind of seems like it's a purge worth doing. That's just what I'm saying, though. Um, any other examples of cancel culture I'd be happy to take on during this program? Um, so far, L R. Kelly's the best answer. Dixie Chicks was legit. I was reading the article about it. They were definitely playing it up, too. They said they were they were ground zero for cancel culture. Again, like Elvis. They tried to cancel Elvis. People try to cancel everything. Canceling stuff has been around since stuff has been around. And quite frankly, more often than not, cancel culture ends up in more sales for whatever is trying to be canceled. You very rarely hear about people trying to block people from having access to something and then their ratings plummeting. South Park, bad for kids. No one should be allowed to watch it. We're currently watching season 26 of South Park. There's no coincidence that this type of stuff happens. Grand Theft Auto, same idea. I, I can go down the list. And quite frankly, a majority of the stuff I'm listing is stuff that defines my childhood. And I'd argue I turned out to be a pretty okay person. Not great, not good, just okay, but I think I turned out pretty okay. It's the same principle. I had a ton of stuff I wanted to talk about today, and it looks like we're only going to get to very little of it. That's fine. Um, it's not like these stories are going to go away tomorrow, but I, I'm, I'm on one today. <sighs> Which one of these should we do, though? That's the question. Probably Fox News. We'll talk about the school loans tomorrow because realistically no decisions are going to be made during my conversation that I'm having with you guys over the course of the next 10 minutes. Um, if any news does break on that, though, we'll be chatting about it tomorrow. I did receive a text from Jim about school loans at the beginning of the show. Uh, he said, here's my beef about the school loan program. It's just amazing how much of an emphasis was put on right before the last election. Totally agree, and it's no coincidence that right after the election, it got rolled back. Absolutely no coincidence. Well, you know what? I'll finish your thought, and then you. Th this is a good comment already. Um, amazing timing for the Democrats. I hear you there. I can understand helping students out, but those in the last 10 years that paid their college loans should at least get some kind of tax reprieve. So who he's describing right now is me. I have nothing to gain by repaying tax loans, tax or uh, school loans back already paid off. I should be given some kind of reprieve, some kind of rebate if they're going to give just the ones that have loans out now. That's my two cents. Well, maybe it's a nickel. Jim, I'm always willing to listen to your nickel's worth of uh, insight here. And I'll tell you what, it's not even school loans that I would lump into this group here. Because honestly, if you remember correctly, about two weeks prior to the election, it was announced that Biden was pardoning a certain type of marijuana offense. I don't remember exactly how it was classified anymore, but it ultimately was only going to impact 6,000 people, which is better than nothing. I understand that. But uh, still, by no stretch of the imagination anywhere near, he could quite literally sign an executive order, say everybody's out and everybody's out. And he just hasn't. So that is uh, is something that Democrats need to reconcile with. But what's interesting is 
Go ahead and look up right now how many of those 6,000 people have been removed from prison yet. Spoilers, I'm not even going to give you time to look it up. It's zero. No one has actually gotten out of jail yet for this offense that they dangled in front of everybody's face right before the election. And if you're sitting there saying, well, Ben, just give them time. Sometimes things like this don't move fast enough. Picture that for you. You're in prison for a nonsense marijuana offense. And it is nonsense. I will go on the record stating it as such. You're in prison for a nonsense marijuana offense. And you're told six months ago, Hey, don't worry. We realize these laws are kind of garbage. We're going to get you out of this situation so you can go on living your life. And six months later, you're still sitting in jail. Think about thinking every day is going to be the day that you finally see things return to the way it should work. And instead, you're in prison for another day for something that over half of the country is doing all the time. And that's not even whenever you count in the fact that it's almost legal in half the country at this point. But, you know, blah, 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 something about government overreach. Am I right? But so we'll bump school loans to a conversation uh, probably tomorrow, depending on what we see happening. I'm not sure if they're actually expecting the uh, a decision today or if it's just starting today. To me, I don't understand how they don't already know what the answer is. Personally, I don't under I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't understand how they don't know. But. We'll see where that goes, and we'll talk about it more tomorrow or the next day or the next day, so on and so forth, at infinitum. But uh, really quickly, have you guys seen what's going on in Fox News? at Fox News? Texts have been made public, essentially highlighting the fact that every single person at Fox News knew the election wasn't rigged. Oh, wow. Wow, I can't believe. I can't believe a bunch of fully functioning adults that are educated, that understand how journalism works, actually knew that the, the election wasn't rigged. It's remarkable. Yet, however, they still allowed for their programming to bring these guests on, pushing a false narrative. Some might argue ultimately led to what we saw on January 6th, most certainly contributed at least a little bit, in, this, in my humble opinion. Um, and then the question becomes, what type of accountability is there going to be for this going forward? Now, obviously, MSNBC and CNN run this story two times per hour, every hour, with a lot of justification, quite frankly. I am not anti—I I think that story does need to be blown up. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that MSNBC and CNN don't have their own versions of this story that just haven't been made public yet. I'm not that stupid, but— I will acknowledge this story needs to be covered as well. And of course, Fox is completely ignoring any of this until they absolutely have to come clean with it. It will be interesting because three of the main people involved in this suit are the primetime hour people. The Sean Hannity's, the, the Tucker Carlson's, and the Laura Ingraham, or Ingram, however you say her last name. Um... That's where all the money is on Fox News. And those guys never claim to be news. They claim to be opinion. And I'm sure they're going to try and hide behind that. But it's pretty hard as a viewer. Like, if you found out that I came up here stumping for for the little guy and for unions and for big business to pay their fair share, and then you guys found out that secretly I was getting paid $150,000 a year extra to, like, distract you from something else that was blatantly happening it would be pretty difficult for you to then turn around and take me seriously when i said anything else ever again 
And that's what's going to be ultimately interesting for me to see develop. I don't think we're going to see firings. I don't think we're going to see reshufflings. What I'm interested to see is, will there be an effort or a movement of people who are fed up with that nonsense? Or are some people so far gone that even with all of this information, even finding out that they never believed the election was rigged, they just sit there and think, man, they were frauds. How can they not see this obvious election rigging happening right in front of their face? It's going to be an interesting development over the course of the next couple weeks. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, Rachel Maddow was Russiagate patient zero every night, an hour straight on all of these. She'd have this this convoluted web of you know, with all the yarns pointing to different people and all this, and this is how all this is connected, and then two years later, it's like, oh, actually, none of this was real. Now, one of two things happened. Rachel Maddow saw some circumstantial evidence and ran with it as if it were completely factual, not something a journalist should do, or she knew what she was saying was nonsense, said it anyway, and then we're at the exact same boat we were at with Fox News right now. And either way, she is still doing her job. Granted, she's been reduced to one day a week, but she is still doing her job. Uh, we have a couple minutes here before we have to go to break. Let's see what we have on the Settlers Bank phone lines. Hello, you're on Outside the Box. Hey, Ben, Cynthia again. I What's have to, up? I laughed about the Fox thing because it reminds me of something. Years ago, my mother was reading my diary. Uh-huh. And I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, I was just checking. And then she said, but here's the lesson. Don't ever write anything down that you wouldn't scream from the street corner. Yeah. These people got busted because of their text messages. <laughs> yep. It all yep. came out during the lawsuit. Well, to me, Cynthia, that implies like there's a feeling of invulnerability, an, an untouchableness <laughs> to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, this is my diary. I have a key to that. Oh, this is my text messages. Why would people ever have <laughs> access to that? And then uh, the wheels come off eventually, and here we are, you know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but well, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, sure thing, Cynthia. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, always enjoy hearing from her. This story isn't going away anytime soon, and you guys know I have no love lost for the center, the representation of the center media, the CNNs and MSNBCs. I know they're full of garbage, too, with a lot of the stuff that they're reporting, and I'm sure we'll hear a thing or two about where the money's going to you whenever we send it to Ukraine a couple of years down the road. And uh, we'll do a bunch of whataboutism once that story all becomes uh, knowledge, uh, public knowledge here. Um, and uh, all right, when we come back, we're going to chat with Haley about what she has coming up on her program. She's in the studio today, so there won't be any technical difficulties. Uh, Craig from West Virginia is talking some crap on Bernie Sanders. I don't know why you got to make it so personal with me sometimes. <laughs> We'll be back in just a couple minutes. This is Outside the Box here on WHBY. Back to Outside the Box with Ben Gominos here on WHBY. Outside the Box is brought to you by Hooper Law Office, providing a pathway to your legacy. 
feels like it's been weeks since we've done this in person. It feels nice. <laughs> How are you today? I'm okay. It does feel weird. I'm so happy to be back in the studio. Yeah, it's been uh, some apocalyptic style weather here. I said this feels like, I still don't know if this is real Wisconsin yet, but this is the closest to a Wisconsin winter weather stretch that I think I've received since I've been here. We've had a couple doozies yeah. over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Still not, I was. Ex- I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe maybe my, my I, I think I was expecting what we saw more to the left of us in the Dakotas and Minnesotas where it was just feet upon feet and it looks like you would just see people disappearing into the snow. I guess that's what I was anticipating. So it's nice. This felt like a nice normal winter storm. You know, I read a lot of Little House on the Prairie uh-huh. books growing up sure. as a kid. And we actually had a lot of the uh, seasons of the television show on DVD okay. as well. So big fans in our household yeah. growing up. It's a classic, mm-hmm. right? I used to read Just them. a classic. Yeah, for sure. Little Carrie Ingalls falling down oh, the hill. Yeah. So yeah. cute. You love it. <laughs> so reading those books, though, as a kid, I was under the impression that the Ingalls family had just dealt with a wall yeah. of, of winter <laughs> nice. conditions. And we, they talked about the blizzards and, you know, Ma using the string to get from the house to the barn because she couldn't see because it was so crazy with snow. And I remember thinking growing up, like, wow. For sure. Those conditions, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. I can only imagine. And And I was always waiting for my blizzard like the Ingalls family had endured. And did it ever happen? I don't think it ever really did. Okay. Yeah. Don't jinx it. But I not knowing what blizzard conditions really entailed, you know, but back then I can't imagine. I can't imagine not having the modern conveniences we all have. Right. So it's funny when you juxtapose that reality to uh, when I got back to my apartment complex yesterday, I did not wear my boots because I never know what the weather is despite working at a news station. So I did not wear. Do you keep a pair in your car? You would think. So I took, uh, I, I, I was in my, my tennis shoes that I normally wear to work, and I get back to my apartment. Nothing really that bad happened, but then the way, right in front of my door, it just pools. And between the rain and then some of the snow melting because it was getting hit with rain, there was about four inches of water, and it just stretched the entire way. And I was like, I have to step in this puddle. There's no way to circumvent this puddle. It ruined like the next 30 minutes of my day. And then you're talking about about a, a woman here holding on to a rope to get from A to B because she can't see ahead of her. And I, I, uh, I'm mad I stepped in a puddle. I'm just saying, you know, it's just funny the way your brain works as a kid. And sure. my logic growing up was that we never had anything as bad as the Ingalls family had to deal with. And I always was waiting for my my blizzard like they dealt with. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I hear you. I'm hoping that was the... I always let my guard down, too. Like, as far as I'm concerned, that was the last big winter storm of, of winter. And <laughs> we like hope, this, right? Right, exactly. And I just know we're going to get we hit again. Hope. I just know it's coming. But uh, Well, yeah. my joke well, my joke has been, I always, I've been telling the kids since we found out we were expecting uh-huh. and we shared our news that the baby's going to arrive once winter ends. <laughs> and winter is not ending, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've still got a couple weeks left then. Kids so would be very confused. Yeah, I'm sure... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes you, you, you dug that hole yourself, you know. Now you got to live in it. That's fine. Um, all right, what do you have coming up for us today? Okay, we've got a fun show. Uh, starting with an uh, a section of the show with Appleton Mayor Jake Woodford in hour number one. Lots to talk about, uh, including uh, the recent, uh, the very latest on the Trout Museum conversation, the mm-hmm. relocation pro- process. We'll talk about the very latest in that, uh, I guess, conversation that is happening, what step they are in. I believe four out of seven, <laughs> something like that. We'll talk with the Sounds mayor. Sounds like government. Yeah. Also today, uh, we might shout out to our Department of Public Works, though. The the roads and the the massive 
undertaking that they've had the past four or five days not easy. No. A lot of people working very long hours, extra shifts. So we'll, we'll shout out to them as well. I believe that bird scooters are returning to Appleton this summer, which is always with controversy. Some yeah. love it. Some hate it. If you love it, if you hate it, we'd love to hear from you. I love it. We had the scooters back home, and that that those things are revolutionary. I will come down staunchly in favor of bird scooters right now. Well, and speaking of the bird scooters, right, there are some proposed traffic changes to College Avenue or sections of College Avenue where they're looking to take it from four lanes to three, yes. which would benefit the scooter riders yes. as it would give them more space on the roadway, which they are supposed to be using versus the sidewalks. Yeah, I'm willing to bet they never use that. I'm I'm willing to bet there's a lot of sidewalk scootering taking place. I would bet that too. Yeah. Also, uh, we had this in our WHPY News update, uh, the fertilizer limit proposal by a few Appleton aldermen. We'll hear what the mayor has to say on that. So Mayor Woodford joining us in our first segment of the show here today. Also, we are welcoming back a Hortonville native, uh, Stacy Griesbach. She's returning to Northeast Wisconsin this weekend. Listeners might recall a few conversations I've had with Stacy over the years about the uh, albums she has put out called um, her first, her Patsy Cline songbook, and then a, a tribute to George Jones, where she takes these classic country artist songs and reimagines them in jazz. Oh, okay. She's coming to the Widener in Green Bay this weekend. So we'll talk with Stacy about that. And I believe she might have some tickets she's looking to give away on the air, too. So oh, fancy. That's coming up. And then finally, Christine and Domestic Abuse Services will join us uh, to wrap up our show here today. We're going to recap their big Men Who Cook event, which happened this past weekend. Sure. How much money did they raise? How much food was eaten? All those things. And then Sadie brought up a really great topic that I'm excited to learn more about and get the word out about to our listeners, which is what do you expect? What can you expect if you need to utilize Christine Ann's services? Mm. What does the process look like? What happens if you call? What happens if you show up? What do you need to know if you find yourself in a position where you need to seek shelter at a place like Christine Ann? You know, that's the kind of stuff that people end up taking for granted so often. We talk about that on the show a lot with uh, mental health. People say we need to address mental health. What does that physically look like, though, as opposed to the words? And I would argue this very much falls into that same category. You want to help domestic abuse survivors, but what does that truly mean? There's an emotional component, an intellectual component, a physical component that people never consider. So that's a fascinating topic there for sure. Well, and can you even just show up? Is right. Christine Ann, you know, able to just accept for lack of a better term, walk-ins. Yes. Is that possible? Is there a process you have to go through? Do you need to be vetted ahead of time? I don't know. I don't yeah. know the answer to that. Exactly. So Sadie will give us give us uh, some direction on that today. Yeah, well, Lord knows it's not like you're scheduling out for those kind of moments in your life. So, I mean, sometimes it just happens and you need help. We'll definitely be paying attention to that conversation there. Haley, thanks a lot for the information. And we only chatted for a moment yesterday. I appreciate yes. the invite. <laughs> To uh, Wisconsin, though, on Saturday. Like, seriously, that was a very... The University of Wisconsin. Uh, 
You, I didn't even know. We were chatting about oh, it yesterday. Oh, this past weekend. Yes. I'm thinking like this coming no, weekend. No, 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 no. Yeah. We, we were <laughs> Happy to. Happy to. Where are we going? <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, no, we talked about it a little bit yesterday. And honestly, I was talking about it with some friends after the fact. It was a very cathartic experience for me. So I just genuinely appreciated the entire thing. Just telling the story, having an opportunity to just impart some wisdom with the kids out there. So I appreciate it. I that. echo that. It is very cathartic. It was a full circle moment for me. And, you know also a little therapeutic Mm -hmm. to share my experiences but also to be validated from others in that industry to say yeah the calls that you made were the right ones (laughs) (laughs) right how often do we second guess ourselves and sure in every step of the way so it was very cool received some really lovely feedback from folks on that as well and um yeah, well, very Happy enjoyable experience. It. Yeah, just wanted to, because we had to go quickly because of uh, technical difficulties yesterday. Were those so on your end sure. or my end? I think on our end, but then also like you like jokingly said, I feel like you could hear me now, and then we could. And I was like, what just happened? I didn't touch anything. Okay, then yeah, it was definitely <laughs> on our end. I had BJ, I genuinely, I had the microphone like way over here, and BJ was just doing stuff on that end. And then eventually he walks away going, I used to be an engineer. And I was like, well, it shows. Hey. Yeah, we got there, though. I'm just glad I was able to stay home. My, yeah. my driveway was oh, I can only quarter imagine. inch of ice. And you said you have 15 minutes of driving before you even get it in interstate. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's a bunch. That's a bunch. All right. Thanks a lot, Haley. We'll Bye, talk ben. to you in a couple minutes. Um, yeah, just a quick thought uh, about scooters before we go, because we only have a minute here. Anybody who's anti-scooter, uh, get over it. All right. That's where I'm coming down on that. They're incredibly convenient. They eliminate the DUI aspect of going down to the city. I realize sometimes people leave them in places that aren't necessarily appropriate, but uh, I feel like that's the cost of doing business sometimes. Some people are better than others at these type of things, right? So there's my two cents on there. I'm sure Haley will have a lot more to throw in throw into that conversation when we get into that on the other side of the news. Be sure to join me tomorrow. One half of the professors is going to be with me talking about all the fun stuff we usually talk about, and we're going to be covering the biggest stories from today. You're listening Outside the Box with Ben Kamenos here on WHBY. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.